um, on the my sprint, everybody tested as needing force. General parameters, you know, 500-pound squatters, you know, three-something-pound cleaners. What do you mean they need force? Well, we got to remember we're talking about horizontal force. That was Scott Sawasser talking about the respective specificity of the weight room and speed on the field. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to the 69th episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Thanks for being here with us today. I have on the line, as we mentioned in the intro, Scott Salwasser of Texas Tech University. Currently, Scott is the Director of Speed and Power Development for Texas Tech Football. He was the first guest on this podcast over a year ago. This was before we had the nice recording, uh, nice audio. It was like shooting from the cuff. I was trying to figure out what I was doing as I was going along, and Scott was nice enough to bring his incredible wealth of speed and power development as well as his experience with football to that first episode. I'm so excited to have him back. Ever since that first piece that him and I did together, he's written some fantastic articles, one on linear lateral training, uh, as well as one that's one of the most popular ever on the site on force velocity profiling in the preparation of NFL Pro Day athletes. And we're specifically talking about getting guys fast for that 40-yard dash. Scott was using there some uh, research-backed, cutting-edge stuff, uh, although really heavy sleds have been around for a while, but using them in the new light of being able to assess exactly the parameters that he needed to train those guys, and he got some great results. That's one of the things we're going to talk about today. And really, you could say the theme of this episode with Scott is force. How does force in the weight room, uh, force on the field, force through using heavy sled training, how are these forces specific unto themselves, and then how do they relate? So if you're interested in getting athletes faster on the football field, on the track, uh, perhaps a different sport, basketball, volleyball, whatever your background, the knowledge that Scott brings is extremely valuable. He is one of the most driven, dedicated, and genuine guys I know in the industry, and he's been getting athletes fast as a private and NCAA strength coach for well over a decade. His uh, Scott's knowledge of speed training, it's really second to none, and 
he has such a uh, amazing network. The guys he references and talks to, guys like Cameron Joss, Sean Mishka, uh, and you're going to see that show up in the episode and talking about some of the heavy sled work, and then as well as something we're going to get into, which is transfer to the field, doing more than just the touch this cone drill and get through it as fast as possible. How do we create transfer to team sports and, and retention through more than just fixed patterning? How do we use a little bit of chaos, moving targets to create learning that lasts, as well as how do we use heavy sleds to create learning that lasts and creating speed on the field. Scott has worked with a number of force testing applications over the years. Uh, the most recent is the My Sprint, which again, we're gonna get into a little bit of that force velocity profiling, how, the, how that influences heavy sled training and how we can get uh, speed and acceleration results in that regards. We're also going to talk a little bit about Scott's general reflections on speed training in college football over the past few years. What has he learned and where is he going? We're going to talk about specificity, positional demands in college football. We're going to talk about creating the open chain, highly transferable movement training that goes beyond uh, running cones for time. We're going to talk about a specific case study on a guy that Scott had knock three to five tenths off of the 40-yard dash using the my sprint heavy sleds, which is just an awesome little chat and insight into how powerful this system can be. So really great episode. Excited to get it to you. Before we do, uh, something new we're doing. If you leave us a five-star rating or review on iTunes or Stitcher and we read it on this pre-roll, uh, we'll send you either a Simply Faster mug or a Just Fly Sports t-shirt. The review we're going to read this week, Jason Fearhaler. Jason said, no question, this is the best podcast for anyone in the strength and conditioning field. There's a ton of useful and applicable info for every guest. So Jason, I'm going to get a hold of you, send you out some gear. Thanks for leaving that. With that said, let's get on to the show, episode 69 with Scott Sawasser of Texas Tech. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming back on, man. Stoked to have you here. Well, I love the show, Joel, and I'm obviously excited to do it anytime I get a chance to. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy season to do this. So uh, just huge on my end to have you back. Can, uh, and you've written some awesome articles in the meantime since we had you up for the very first episode of the show, which I that's, again, another reason I'm happy to have you back because my quality of audio and everything, I was like, I need to do justice, full justice to this guy. Uh, not that it was like, I mean, people could still understand it, but, you know, we it's just awesome to have you back now that we've progressed. And, and I'd love to chat about what are some of the biggest things that you have learned about speed training over the course of this past season or since we have talked last? Well, obviously, uh, that's... You know, a tough question to answer because you're always learning every day, trying to read and uh, contact with uh, experts in the profession and learn as much as you can. I guess the best way for me to answer that question would, would be to say in the next year or in the future, what would I change about my program or what, what will I try to update? And um, Cam Joss actually re uh, wrote an excellent article uh, about top speed training for football that just came out not long ago. And Cam's a good buddy of mine, and we've talked about this before. And I've always been a big believer in doing longer sprints or top speed work for football players, specifically, especially skill players. Um, and my philosophy has always been, you know, you, you strength coaches are so scared of top speed work, you know, but I always feel like, you know, you run your 10s and your 20s, well, what happens when one of your athletes takes a handoff, breaks it, he's heading for the house, are you as a strength coach going to run out there and say, no, 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 you can't run further than 20 yards, you're going to pull a hamstring? No, they've got to be prepared for that. So 
I'll preface it by saying I've always been a big fan of top speed work for football players, especially skill players. So that's nothing new. But I guess what I would say is I would put an even bigger emphasis on it um, in the future than I have before, especially with some of Ken Clark's work, um, which which Cam has alluded to in terms of uh, football players reaching, even fast football players reaching their top speed uh, so rapidly, so quickly, both in terms of time and in terms of yardage, um, spending more time in that upright posture, in, in those top speed, not only mechanics, but at those higher velocities, you know, above 20 miles per hour velocities um, that we need to train them for it. And, and that will in turn enhance their acceleration um, a, as well as making sure that none of your guys ever get run down. Because think about it, you may only have two or three plays in a game where guys are running you know, 60, 70 yards, but more than likely those are two or three plays that might decide the game, right? So if your guy gets run down, there's no guarantee that you're going to score after that. So um, I, I guess both in terms of performance, injury prevention, and just uh, philosophically and theoretically um, enhancing every component of their linear speed work via um, doing more top-end speed work. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, the idea of uh, not only you're going to obviously have to do this a few times a game, but, and I learned this when I had the Ken Clark on my podcast, the idea of using top end speed and the rhythm and some of the positions to kind of be a, a functional screen and maybe, and it can help even acceleration with the rhythm of acceleration. And you kind of see where the wheels fall off too. When someone gets up and fr- sprints full speed, it's a mechanically, there's a lot more to look at. Absolutely. Uh, well, that's, that's cool, man. I, I really, um, I really appreciate your insight, and I want to get into uh, some of the things that we've t- been talking about recently, as well as some of the things that you've worked on and written on for Just Fly Sports. I'd like to get into all that, and one of the things we were talking about recently was uh, just being strong in the weight room versus being strong and fast on the field. So, right. what are what are some things uh, that b- both generalities and then maybe some specific anecdotes? of what you're seeing with guys who can just be fast on the field and maybe some some things you are looking at or maybe some uh, adjustments you might have to make in the weight room for those athletes. Right. So <clears throat> obviously we know mm-hmm. that, as you mentioned, in a, in a general manner, you, you've got to be able to produce force, right? That's the king. Force is king, right? But being strong and being forceful on the field um, – doesn't necessarily equate to being a good weightlifter. And I think that's one thing that people always have to remember is um, a guy can be a great force producer and maybe not the best at a back squat or a power clean or some of the traditional measures. And in my mind, that's where some of the force plates and force velocity measurements kind of help give you insight because you can see, okay, well, this guy is a great force producer. He's maybe not a great weightlifter in some of the traditional means I'm having him do. Um, well, let me look at a variety of other ways to to train him so that I can load him, but load him in, in a safe manner and maybe not stress out about turning him into a 600-pound back squatter um, because that's only one way of displaying force. And for a field sport athlete, Anything we do in the weight room is going to be general anyway, so there's really not one exercise that we desperately have to do. Are there exercises that I feel and we all feel are better than others? Certainly, Um, but the 
the main thing is that we're training certain strength qualities, some of those special strength qualities in, in whatever form or whatever means we choose to. So I think that that's one thing we always have to remember is there's a difference between being a great force producer on the field um, and being a great weightlifter. Yeah, you had talked a little bit too about uh, Aaron Aaron Gordon in the dunk contest, uh, you know, dunk contest, uh, you know, excellent jumper, uh, and and his squat was really bad. I think you were saying, like, compared to what he could actually force output. Right. So when I was at uh, Sparta Performance Science, I had the fortune of working with Aaron, and he was um, finishing up his high school career um, at that point. And as we all know, tremendous dunker, clearly a great force producer, um, poor squatter. Uh, relative to everything else that he could do. So if we were just hung up on a, on a squat, we would look at him and say, oh, the kid's weak, right? And so we would probably spend tremendous amounts of time getting him better at a general exercise that, number one, <clears throat> maybe he's just not anthropometrically suited to do well, and number two, doesn't tell the whole story. Um, but you put him on a trap bar deadlift and – even back then, he could pull the house, you know. So it's it's about number one, seeing the whole picture, which fortunately I was able to do with the force plate and knowing, okay, he's he's clearly a good force producer, um, and also looking for for ways to train him that might be safer and smarter, and not getting hung up on on one specific means. Now the flip side of that is you could you could say, okay, well, since he's so bad at squat, maybe he needs to get better at squat, and and maybe he does, but. We know that, and we can get him better at squat, but we also know that we can load other exercise exercises probably heavier and use that as our means of absolute strength work um, while we work on whatever the limiting factors might be in squat, whether it be mobility, pure, pure, purely a technical issue, uh, so forth and so on. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, that's a good point too. I think that actually reaches the heart of a lot of debate people have and people who are like, oh yeah, well you have to squat one and a half times your body weight before you can, but it's like if you, it's almost like you get caught between two animals. Like uh, it's a high jumper myself, like, and that's the extreme end. Like a high jumper could be an awesome quarter squatter and high trap bar deadlifter because that's where all their length tension is, but you put them at the bottom of the squat and they're going to get, they're terrible there. But if you just bring up their squat, it's actually going to make them everything they're good at. It's going to bring that down. And so it's like, do you really want to do that? Like you, you have to. And I think that's why it was really cool. You're saying with Aaron Gordon, like, yeah, the guy could trap our deadlift, like let him rock that out. Like that's his animal, you know, and then slowly bring up the weakness over time without like stressing out about it. Like, like, oh, you have to like square peg in a round hole. Right. Right. Well, that, that, that kind of on that topic, you know, that brings up, um, <clears throat> JB Marin was taught who's another excellent guy to follow for your listeners if they haven't but he was talking about Christoph Lemater and uh, how he spent so much time trying to get stronger in general means or his coaches had him and it actually had a negative effect on his times you know and that's not saying that we shouldn't try to get stronger or that getting stronger is going to make you slower you just have to know your athlete and know what the limiting factors are for them but also know what their strengths are and know, okay, if this is our bread and butter, we're not going to sacrifice that to enhance our weaknesses. We're going to train our weaknesses concurrently while making sure we're good at what we're already good at. So uh, it's, it's, always, it's always a balance, and I think that's 
sometimes the beauty of, of the force profiling is knowing what you're good at and what you're weak at and not sacrificing one to train the other. You know, I think a lot of people, um, that's kind of been the knock on profiling, right? Is, well, you're only going to train this one thing. Well, no, you're not. You're, you're, you're just using it as a deeper insight into what the athlete needs and doesn't need so that you can make educated guesses in your programming. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's as simple as that, you know, it does profiling, do force plates and, and force velocity profiling, do they cure cancer? No. Um, are they worthless? No. It's always as, as, as with the, as with, uh, anything, it's always somewhere in the middle, you know, and, and it's about understanding your athlete, understanding what you're looking at when you profile and then, and then having an open mind and, and understanding your template and knowing where some of this could fit in without completely scrapping everything and saying, oh, we're only going to train this, only going to train that. Obviously, profiling doesn't replace um, a good, well-balanced, well-thought-out program based off of traditional principles that we know work. It just enhances that last 5 to 10% that a developmental athlete may not need, but some of your best athletes, that's what's going to take them um, to the next level or, or really top off their performance. Yeah. I, and I want to, that's really cool. You mentioned that, especially like those upper level athletes who already are like pretty well trained and they have decent strength, but you have to find that deeper meaning in the specific, the real specific aspect. I, I like that you brought up Christoph Lemaitre as well. Cause it's like, you look at that guy like, yeah, you probably need a little more strength. Probably is going to help you out. But then, if it goes out of balance, you know, if you, I mean, I'd imagine if he lifted, you know, the story is he lifted a lot of weights and got slower. Well, they probably was just, you know, they probably didn't let him rock his strengths out. I mean, it's like you got to deep squat more. You gotta, you gotta get to this number. Let's let's crush this. And then all of a sudden, all the things you were good at are kind of like thrown to the wayside and and you know i think you do need to train your strengths or weaknesses in the off season but it just has to be in balance like like appropriately and you have to look at the demands of your sport but also your position you know specifically my sport in football i would be a lot more um bullish about the interior lineman's output on squat bench clean etc maybe than i would on a you know, outside receiver or something, because that's going to be more directly tied to the demands of their position. They're working against heavy resistance on every play. So if you want to talk about specificity, that's going, even though it's still general exercise, those strength qualities are going to be a lot more specific to what they're doing on a, on a play by play basis. Whereas some of your guys that are farther out away from the ball um, does it enhance what they do? Certainly, but you know, maybe in a more indirect fashion. Yeah. So you'd say, and and maybe this could be a little gateway into some of the force velocity work you've been doing and what you've been learning the last year. But you would say that what what you just said there. Would you say that using like the force velocity profile, the my sprint type stuff? Probably the farther you get away from the ball, the more relevant that might be for looking at players. Where if you're at the ball, you just you got to be strong. Would you say that's accurate, or am I just kind of? Trying to pull something out of my my butt here. I would say the sprint profiling, yeah, would certainly probably be more more important the further you are away from the ball because just acceleration and top end speed, etc., are are more valuable to your livelihood. You know, they are more specific to what you're doing on a play by play basis. So now you could say the jump profiling, you know, that that could be a little more. Um, 
have a little more efficacy across the board, right? Because we're talking about a single explosive movement, which everybody on the field is going to do, right? But the sprint profiling, yeah, I would agree with you that it's probably more beneficial for your guys that are on the outskirts uh, farther away from the ball. Yeah, that makes good sense. Yeah, like jumping bilateral. It's uh, It makes you even think a little bit, and this is a memory I have back. One of my first, I don't know, like almost you could say strength and conditioning mentorship memories, I uh, was talking with uh, Josh Hinks, who's now with the Eagles, and this was in my early 20s, and he was talking about how his skill guys could could do a weighted lunge or reverse lunge with more than his, his the linemen. But the linemen are going to blow those guys away in squat. It's just what's specific to how you're moving and, and what your position is. And that was like, that was like one of my first, whoa, like that's really crazy and interesting moments uh, in my early upbringing. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of uh, the weight room, Scott, as well, so kind of talking, uh, continuing uh, to talk there as we maybe move more into some force velocity type work and what you've been, what you, how's that's been impacting what you're doing? Uh, but how are you looking uh, to the weight room to bridge the gap in terms of maybe what you well maybe what you might see in that force velocity profile and obviously different maybe let's start with the skill and uh, the guys out away from the ball a little bit because I think that speed being maybe a lot of people uh, track coaches listening those types of things we can hit on that first uh, but is the force velocity profile impacting? Uh, what you might be doing with some of these guys uh, with a huge team are you able to individualize that or is it more something with the, the combine the combine group uh well first and foremost the guys that i have actually force velocity profiled and then implemented interventions has been exclusively um veteran um high-end athletes and post uh, college pro day and pro guys. And that's been the extent of it, uh, mainly because <clears throat> they're at the point in their development where they need that last five, 10% that, that uh, we discussed, you know, they all have excellent output in general parameters that you could say that maybe squatting 10 more pounds or, or something uh, may or may not, depending on what they need, um, benefit them as much. And so I needed a clear picture of what exactly their limiting factors were in terms of sprinting and jumping. Um, and, and then for the, obviously the pro day athlete, I mean, that's what they're going to be judged on, right? Their sport at that point in time is sprinting and jumping because that's, what's going to give them the chance to play more football. So that's been my population so far. Um, we have discussed rolling it out on a larger basis you know, but on any, I think, football team, except for the lucky few, majority of your population are deve developmental type athletes, um, athletes that really haven't, don't, even though they're genetically blessed, don't have a very high training age um, and still have not put in um, a lot of hours and a lot of repetitions in the weight room. Um, you know, so I, I do believe that, as I spoke before, a good, well thought out, uh, well conceived, um, <clears throat> well rounded, balanced program is going to enhance majority of your team um, just through that, you know, just through through basic, um, basic good training and good coaching. So um, could you uh, screen a whole team? Certainly. And, and it, it might give you some insight. It might give you some insight into trends you know, that your program uh, as a whole needs to address. But uh, currently I focus it more on the high-end athletes 
um, as opposed to more of the developmental type guys. Yeah, it makes me think a little bit about, well, a couple thoughts and a lot of stuff I've learned through uh, being a part of like uh, going to J. DeMeo's seminar over at Central Virginia Sports Performance. And Joseph Johnson was saying, how many of us are training athletes that are truly elite? Like we look at the elite programs, but a lot of our athletes, even if they're gifted, their training age isn't like doesn't make them an advanced trainee or an elite trainee. They just need basic basic training uh as well as to the idea of um i guess the idea of like over making like overly data dataifying if that's a word an uh, or, uh, an athlete without a big training age that just needs to do solid right. training and and not become overly robotic i mean obviously you know once you get those few you can you can really do some good job with the numbers but um also the idea too is like eric Corum and uh, andrew altoff were talking about like the triage like hey have you earned this upper level you uh, work yet you have you earned the right. ability to have this upper level like sports science and attention on you uh in your your right. time with us that's a great point you know it takes a lot of maturity to uh individualized training like that you know certainly um for your athletes that have earned that um it's 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 special and and focused you know on their specific needs but majority of your team um as you mentioned if <clears throat> that's a good way of putting it, I guess. They haven't earned the right. They haven't put in enough time, um, enough hours. And just because they're genetically blessed, um, as you mentioned, you know, you can't let that fool you into thinking that they're elite um, at training, they're just elite at their sport through God-given gifts, you know. So we have to look at their training age and, and their skill level, you know, and the <clears throat> methods and means that you're that you're trying to apply to them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so with those guys, uh, too, those upper level guys, you're able to do the force velocity profiling on. Uh, what are? Can you talk a little bit about how you uh, played that out through the my jump and my sprint? Uh, how you adjusted people's training based off that, and then how that's been impacting, if nothing else, just generally how you've been looking at athletes uh, from here on out, whether I guess you profiled them or not. How has that impacted right. you? So the biggest thing, I guess, um, the biggest takeaway from the my sprint is that. And I'll speak specifically in terms of um, my pro day group here. Um, on the my sprint, everybody tested as needing force um, on my sprint, which a lot of people, including maybe myself at first, were surprised by because some of the guys, as I mentioned, on general parameters, you know, 500 pound squatters, you know, three something pound cleaners, what do you mean they need force? Well, we got to remember we're talking about horizontal force. Here. And that was the big thing is that the ratio of force or RF, which JB has talked about many times, you, I, I, is what I looked at. And it was like 50 percent, you know, and, and elite sprinters get up towards 70 percent. And so my goal was if I can get these guys to even 60 percent of directing their force horizontally, um, it's going to significantly improve what they're doing Um and if I can increase their <clears throat> force relative to body weight as well, obviously we know that's going to help them too. But if I can just take what they have and redirect it more horizontally, um, it's going to have a significant impact. So that was kind of my goal. Uh, as I mentioned, most of them started out at roughly 50%. And they all, after about eight weeks, uh, as we transitioned into pro day, got up to the upper 50s to low 60%. Um, RF ratio force and they also increased their DRF which is the decrease um, in ratio force basically how long you can continue 
to apply force horizontally before you become purely vertical, which of course will dictate your ability to accelerate further, deeper, and, and potentially to higher speed. So that was significant. Along with that, they increased their uh, Newtons per kilogram of force output, so force relative to body weight um, significantly as well. So between the two, um, we saw, in my opinion, major improvement, you know, uh, one to two tenths off their 40 in, in a relatively short period of time. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, that, that's great, man. And I want to I just kind of rehash uh, the ratio of force and decrease in ratio of force because I'm very familiar. I've had JB on the podcast. Uh, I've, I've consulted with him a little bit in last year. I have him help me out with some things. Brilliant, brilliant researcher. And, and I think he's helping doing a big thing for the speed community. Uh, but when you talk about, just for to clarify too for everyone listening, uh, so I know the decrease in ratio of force is the ability to, uh, how, how much does an athlete drop off in being able to put force backwards into the ground how much does their push right. drop off uh what was just the ratio of force uh you said elite sprinters were 70 and you guys were 50 could you just go into that really quickly horizontal relative to vertical so there's 100 the, the entire impulse is 100 percent. what percentage of that is horizontal and uh, what percentage of that is vertical and the rf uh, refers to the the peak measurement of of that value so at uh, which is obviously going to be at the beginning of the sprint as they start out, what percentage is going into the ground horizontally versus vertically? Because if you start out at 50%, it's only going to get worse, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're starting out at 61%, you know, that, that gives you a little bit of an affordance, you know, to potentially accelerate better. So, um, and you know, I never really addressed your, your question about training methods. Um, we, did a lot of the heavy sled work that Matt Cross, that JB, that Cam Joss have discussed. Um, I, I don't have 1080 sprint like Cam does, so I wasn't able to get some of the same measurements on that. I was able to, uh, as you mentioned, look at the um, my sprint data, but we did 80% body weight, um, and we did basically the progression was um, body weight or heavier. Um, marching early on just to kind of uh, uh, ingrain, I guess, the, the feel or the technical component of, of deep body lean, almost like a moving wall drill. Um, and then we progressed to sprinting shorter distances um, at 80% body weight on the sled um, uh, out to 20 yards. And my goal and a lot of this came in conjunction with Cam and I kind of being at the same point in our usage of some of these methods, kind of bouncing ideas off each other. My goal was for them to run 20 yards um, in their 40 time, pulling 80% of their body weight, So, which would equate to roughly 50%, um, give or take, uh, uh, velocity loss, but at, at that heavy weight. And then I tried to then progress from that into the DRF aspect. So we, we then started complexing the heavy loads, the 80% with 20% body weight, which I found that over 30 yards gave me about a 10% drop off in their time, you know, so they might run uh, uh, 30 yards, 10% uh, slower than they would uh, unloaded. But what it did was it bridged the gap 
between heavily loaded sprints and free sprinting. Because what I've found is that uh, you go if you if you go straight from the heavily loaded sprints, yeah, in theory you're going to get great potentiation. But any of us that have tried it knows <laughs> what do you see? Guys stumble, right? Because it feels weird. And uh, so I would go from the 80% to the 20% to unweighted, and it was almost kind of uncanny how good it looked because the the decrease in load was just enough to where um, proprioceptively they were able to carry out what they were trying to do without being thrown off, without stumbling, um, but we still got the potentiation effect. So that was kind of what we, you know, over weeks, what we progressed to was heavy, um, light, unweighted, um, and, and that was kind of the, the major acceleration work so to speak that, that we would do i think there's there's so much gold in there man I actually I'm, I'm like kind of writing down almost at the same time so i can gather my thoughts with that and uh i i, I have a few points that i want to get to so i'm going to start at the top which is uh, going back just a little bit and then i want to get to who you're talking about the complex sled stuff because that stuff is i think that is so awesome and i, I love what you just said there because it reminded me of a lot of things as well as stuff that cam and i were talking about in the aftermath of cam's first podcast with me but first i just found it really fascinating that you know these guys who are really big weight room guys are testing uh poor in their ability to direct horizontal force to the ground and it's like everything i've been learning especially this last year or two not only through jb but also in starting to put together this book, this work on strength training and context of speed is that force is specific. Like your adaptations are pretty, especially on the neural level are specific. And so uh, directing, just because you can direct force bilaterally in a vertical manner, doesn't mean that you're going to be able to coordinate that horizontally. And, and so I thought that was interesting that you could test strong in something specifically and then, and then something else in a different movement you could be i guess weak or need force right that's interesting to me you know a lot of it too and this this is something that we found uh when i had the fortune of working at sparta too is that sometimes um there is a a weak link or a, a leak in the hose so to speak that will limit the force production as well you know so you may have a guy that with specifically a weak trunk or poor trunk stability maybe because they had a back injury or maybe they just um, uh, are unable to stiffen up their trunk properly and force will leak out from there. So maybe they perform strong in certain general exercises as well, but when they have to um, direct force throughout the entire body and into the ground on something like acceleration, which requires uh, trunk stability in order to hold your body in the optimal position, um, that's sometimes where the force escapes as well. Yeah, it's it's a really uh it's it's so much fun training speed. I mean there's so many variables, right? There it could be this, it could be this. It's like just such an amazing puzzle to solve and and it's Absolutely. always <laughs> It's always fun to see all those little different things that could make a difference. Uh I want to talk uh then so after so with the force discrepancy which again I find fascinating, um bridging the gap. So you talked about and this kind of put off a few uh, – it not only reminded me of some stuff but also kind of helped me to connect some things. But talking about – I know Cameron was talking about after the heavy sled work, uh, they would – where there was like a 50% decrement in your speed, which is a pretty serious load. They would they would contrast that by finishing with some really light-resisted stuff to, to keep that coordination. And then you were talking about the same thing there, dropping uh, – and you were dropping, doing 80, 20 unweighted and, and doing complex stuff. 
And I, uh, I was thinking about that a little bit, and, and uh, not too long ago, it was several months ago, I was having a conversation with Mark Jellison, who's a Cal uh, alum, decathlete, really elite athlete, and he's been training with um, one of the local uh, coaches at Laney College who is an Olympian hurdler, and one of the workouts he had him do, it's, sim- it's super simple, as simple as it gets, is just a, a sled complex where you start with a really heavy weight, do a few sp- sprints, take a plate off, do a few more, take a plate off, do a few more, and by the end, you are ripping it, like... But it's that like, you know, it, rather than dropping from 100 to zero, like you're you're stepping down. And, and I've done that myself and I've um, been utilizing it. And I think it is I think it's great. Like it feels way better than if you're just to go from 100 to zero so that it's potentiating. But you're also maintaining coordination. Right. It's not like this. It's not like this, like drop off a, a cliff into uh, if that makes sense. <laughs> right. Well, if it's kind of going off of what you just said, you know, if, if it's one thing that I've discovered over the course of my career is that a lot of the stuff that works is simple what's complex is your understanding and application of it you know or it's 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 not a lot of the stuff that looks fancy and looks crazy that's that's not what works it's this stuff that looks basic and looks simple to to the casual bystander but in your head it's so it's worth so much more than that right because your application to the athlete um, has so much understanding behind it that, that that's the complex part. Yeah, no, totally, man. I, I was listening to uh, uh, Christian Thibodeau on uh, uh, Robbie Burke's podcast recently. It was actually one of his older episodes. And uh, something I liked, he's like, I have no ego. I will listen to anybody who says something works. I will pay attention to them. I don't care if it's a guy up the street and he said this works. Like, cause, and as uh, you and I know, as we learn more about the complexities behind it, we can look at this simple thing and be like, oh, yeah that's why that works cool like let's let's rip it let's do this mm-hmm. uh so in light of in light of what you've done with those uh pro day guys and stuff so going in working with those guys uh what were the results that you saw in the wake of that and is that impacting any of the things you're doing with your team now just from a general perspective obviously as we talked you're you're not going to go ever the freshman's not going to get on campus you're like oh yeah let's get this and this and this on you uh but has that impacted uh, how are the results and how has that impacted you at least in a general the way you just look at athletes from a general perspective now right well um as i mentioned you know due to the increase in the various force producing capabilities um you know that they all improved um significantly in their 40 according to my sprint i actually had one guy that improved by five tenths of a second wow you know i mean who knows on day one what his testing condition was and he but his 40 did improve by uh almost 0.3 tenths of a second and that's on a scout's stopwatch you know and my my timing was all uh electronic timing with a brower timing system because that way it kept me from getting you know too too excited or too tied into the process (laughs) and wanted to be a little bit more objective but they all improved significantly um and as far as how does it affect what we do speed wise with the team we do a lot of the same stuff i mean if it works if it works for them it's going to work for our guys i mean it's it's a very similar you know maybe not to the same developmental level but it's a very it's a very similar population especially specifically um the group that i'm particularly in charge of the skill athletes I mean, a lot of it looks the same you know and and across the board we, we have the good we have the good fortune of um, I'm real big on position specificity. So <clears throat> college football has five strength coaches. So we like to use all five and we'll break up movement work, whether it be 
um, acceleration work or whether it be multi-directional work, which is kind of something that I've been hot on lately, looking into a lot of Sean Mishka's um, work and talking to Sean and, and getting deep in the rabbit hole with that. But we'll break it up by position so that the, that they're getting what they need specific to the demands of what they're trying to do. And some of it will have a lot of crossover. You know, everybody runs the, the heavy sled work, everybody on the team will do in, in some way, shape, or form. But as we move across the, the calendar, you know, deeper into the summer, some of the skill guys um, have and will do some of the longer sprint work, 60 yards, flying 20s, et cetera, where obviously the linemen aren't. They're doing something maybe that'll transfer more to their position. And I think that's one thing that we pride ourselves on that we do a great job of um, is taking 100 guys and trying to do as best we can give them what they need. I think that's a big problem across the board. People think because you've got 100 guys, they've all got to do the same thing or it's going to turn into a circus. Well, no, it doesn't. I mean, you've got to um, be prepared. I mean, I've got two football fields worth of equipment set up hours in advance for this team run that's going to be individualized. Um, but we've got five excellent coaches um, plus interns to help, you know, and, and when you've got good coaches and good planning um, and, and there's buy-in, you know, I think you can really, really give the athletes what they want instead of just running up and down the field um, all the time. Yeah, I, I like to get into that positional specificity and some of the things you're doing as well. And just a, a question here. Um, it was interesting. You make me you were you were saying how the obviously, yeah, well, I mean, are you really going to have a 300 pound guy be doing flying 20s? I mean, that that would be you know, silly compared to their demands, right? Right. If he's if he's training for the combine, maybe. But, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Other other than that, no, not not typically. You know, they actually typically start to work their way backwards and get back into some of the shorter stuff, whereas the skill guys will continue to get longer and longer. Yeah, um, it makes me think too about. Uh, I mean, I'm part of the track football consortium. That's a couple times a year. Just trying the the whole conference tries to blend you know tr football constructs with track and field and the benefits. And it's kind of like with your college guys who that is the time you're going to start specializing in many cases. Uh, that you're still keeping those elements of track and field is still being good at top end speed. And this is still something we do when we train and we want to be right. good at. I think so many people miss out on that. That's going to transfer to everything that a football player yeah. does because we all, everybody loves GPS now. Well, what does the GPS tell you? There's lots of yards of, you know, relatively high intensity sprinting. Yeah. So if you're not doing that in your training, you know, how are you, how are you really getting them prepared to play? We understand the value of absolute strength um, in preparation, even though we'll all agree that they're not going to squat or bench for seven points on Saturday. Um, but yet a lot of people don't realize the benefit of absolute general absolute speed in their preparation. If I move faster, it makes everything easier. My conditioning level automatically improves. Um, and even my multiple multi-directional movements, I'm better to accelerate better. When I, when I make my break, I can get out and go sooner and more suddenly um so it, it indirectly enhances everything i'm going to do movement wise yeah you talked about even the ratio of forces like someone who isn't producing horizontal force efficiently every sprint they do is probably going to be harder like it's again they're going to have to use more muscle and they're using it in the wrong direction so every sprint is harder if you train that stuff yeah less it, less efficient movement efficiency that's what i always yeah. a lot of times uh you know our, our some of our guys that maybe think they're not in shape or struggle to, to with the conditioning 
a lot of times the answer isn't extra conditioning, which, you know, a lot of the times is, you know, mobility or something that relates back to movement efficiency that will help them. I, you know, I've had guys that we just work on maybe pelvic tilt or, or anterior pelvic tilt, get, get them a little more neutral. Or, and now all of a sudden their, their back isn't tightening up as much when they condition and all of a sudden, you know, it, it's, it's so much easier for them. And they didn't, you know, their VO2 max or something probably didn't even improve, but we just improved their movement efficiency, whether it be by a, a basic fundamental mobility stability type deal, which is, which is where I always start. At, from the ground up and a lot of times that's where you'll find something or, or just basic technical issues a lot of times you can you can get a guy to be a lot more fit just by cleaning up the base of the pyramid you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah I, that's that's great stuff and it's like the farther i think this industry gets away from just the very black and white you know, lift a lot and, and then, you know, condition player sport. And we start to get into these things that make athletes more efficient, these little data points, be it a biomechanical, what you're talking about with mobility, understanding how your athletes work uh, and, and every little thing that makes them just a little more efficient. I think those are the things that are really driving our industry forward. And that's, it's awesome to hear from you, man. I, I wanted to go back to, uh, you mentioned the top speed and I think this is cool. I'd like to get your take on it, but just all these stats that are coming out with GPS, like those NFL stats. There was a uh, Leonard Fournette, you know, going 22 miles an hour, blowing by a guy. I think that's going to change too the way that people look at what makes this great player. You know, like it's not. I'm sure the guy can squat like a truck, you know, but he's fat. Like that that speed is what people like like to see on the screen and the stats, and that's it's the game changer, right? Absolutely, Tyreek Hill, the same thing. Some of the stuff that he's been doing. Um, as data points are are freakish and kind of as an as an aside i was talking to sean mishka about this the other day you know my my fantasy football team is made up completely of guys that i think uh move well or or are fast you know so it's it might be a little bit biased but it makes it fun for me you know so uh even though we're 500 right now as a fantasy team um it it, i can take pride and say that we're the best moving fantasy team (laughs) But there is. I, I like that, man. I, uh, you know, it's. It, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but a guest I had on two episodes ago, Chong Ji, he's a, he's really into the feet and fascia, and I'm pretty sure that he d- he does some fantasy stuff based off of athletes like feet and their 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 ability <laughs> to put their feet in their shots and you know re- and yeah. move efficiently on the court. So that's the money ball factor, man. It's little things that are yeah. starting to work their way in. Uh, yeah. So I, I yeah positional. I like to get obviously uh, to positional work. So in terms of uh, your work with Sean Mishka, uh, in terms of you having more time in specializing as a football strength coach, talking with the position coaches, integrating yourself fully as a staff. Could you talk a little bit into how you're doing that and how it's making a difference right. in not just doing like the canned agility drills? How are you approaching this from a whole systemic perspective? Right. Huge question, I suppose, probably, but no, you, however you want to take it. Fa- it's a fantastic question. I think that's one thing that, um, really is the future of our profession is knowledge of the sport. Um, and I, I think now, especially that more and more of us are able to specialize, it gives us the opportunity. It gives us more time. Well, what are we doing with that time? As far as on behalf of our staff, um, we like to go to position meetings. 
um, special teams meetings. We're, we're each in charge of a position, uh, both in the weight room and movement wise. So I have wide receivers and DBs. Um, so I go to the wide receiver and DB meetings. Um, I like to talk to the position coaches. I, I like to ask questions of the athletes um, in terms of when they're on the field, when, what they're looking for, how they respond to certain things. I think uh, having a comprehensive view of the position and the sport that you're coaching um, gives you a quantum leap in your ability to program and your ability to coach. I think for some reason there's been a stigma like coaches or strength coaches will say, well, we're not sport coaches or we're not football coaches. Well, yeah, you're not, but no one's asking you to be. You're just, we should understand the movements um, both biomechanically, but also in terms, you know, behaviorally and uh, in terms of, uh, of the brain and intentionally get, getting into Sean's, you know, three B's. Um, we need to understand all of that. It will help our programming and it will also help our coaching it will help our program design it will help us design drills that better prepare the athlete uh, for what they're actually going to experience um, back to my analogy earlier I, I said well if why would you why would the first time you have your running back run 60 yards be with 11 angry men chasing him and holding <laughs> a football you wouldn't right so, or at least I wouldn't well same thing with with the rest of your program the rest of your drills is running around cones in a predetermined pattern. Uh, if a guy gets good at that, that's the base of the pyramid, right? That's okay. I know he can do a power cut or I know he can cut off his outside foot properly, biomechanically. Okay, but it's, it's got to move on from that. We always wonder why this guy that runs great times in these general drills, and that was me in college. If you looked at my pro agility and L drill time, and then looked at my film, you'd be like, what happened here? Well, it was because I practiced those drills. It was re rehearsal. It was repetition. I got good at those specific drills. But we've got to go beyond that. We've got to get the athletes. Um, we always talk about transfer of training in terms of strength movements. Does this movement transfer to the competitive exercise? Well, does the environment transfer to the competitive exercise? If a guy can perform this movement around a cone or around a bag when he knows what he's doing, but then can he perform it responding to something that's also moving um, that may be close to him, further away from him, a little more unpredictable, uh, leaning, not leaning, m moving in a variety of different ways, um, also with physical, psychological, and emotional stress. Um, that's what the, we're getting them ready for as well. So I think that's really the next step that we're trying to take as a program, but also uh, uh, just th that I believe in strongly that um, we've, we've got to understand the sport well enough to be able to say everything that I just said, though, because if, if, you, if you don't understand your sport, and when I started out in the profession, you know, as a young strength coach, I assisted with football and then had like eight other sports, so I didn't understand those sports. And I think back, and it's a giant regret because number one, I, 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 you could say, well, I didn't have the time, but, but I was doing a disservice. And I think there's strength coaches all over the country, as well-meaning as they may be, and, and as much improvement as they will get from just a general wealth-intentioned program. Um, the next level is transfer of training in all in all areas, not just you know this 
um, this one strength movement, does it transfer to the competitive exercise, but can we get the environment? Can we get the brain? Can we get the behaviors to transfer from closed environments to open, unpredictable environments? I think that's really the next threshold. And it all goes back to, to spending enough time around your sport coaches and the players and asking questions and watching film so that you know what that environment is. Yeah, that's that's gold, man. I mean, that's where the industry is headed. Like, it's and it's a point where too. I in my time as a strength coach, full time, moving off of full time track and field. When I got into strength and conditioning full time, I always had this thought. You, I would see people, and even in my early experience as a strength coach, I would see people doing agility drills. But I, for some reason, I was like, and you watch athletes just move, like even athletes doing cat and mouse drills with no coaching. It's amazing what their brain can put together to react to somebody outside of of being coached to do it. Like even that and sprinting too, watching good athletes sprint, like youth athletes sprint who just get it. Uh, I'm like, well, what's what's having this guy do a cone drill, a can cone drill going to do to improve them? Uh, Is it going to do anything? Probably not. I mean, at least they get some training in. Yeah. So with that in mind too, man, I mean, what are some, what are some things that you are learning, applying, even if it's uh, on the level of practice or ideas on how you can use what you're learning from the sport coach, learning from some of the you know, friends like Sean Mishka, motor learning, game speed type ideas. What are some practical right. thoughts there in that realm? Well, so even as, as far back as this summer, uh, we got into a lot of the, as I mentioned, position specific work. Uh, so each of the five coaches took a position and the, the same position that they have across the board, weight room movement, et cetera, and did uh, acceleration work, deceleration work, explosive movement work, uh, <clears throat> all position specific based off of the, the movement patterns, but also the engagement with the opponent that that position was going to have um, interacting with the environment. So to speak that that position was going to have. So that was, we were already doing that. But once the season started um, is when I really started to get uh, into some of Sean's work and, and uh, talking to him on the phone, it's, et cetera. And uh, it's really kind of changed a lot of uh, uh, the depth of my understanding of skill acquisition and the opportunities that I've been afforded to um, experience or program with it. I don't want to say experiment, but um, utilize it. Uh, have been limited to return to play athletes so far during the season. Um, but I've seen tremendous results with that. Now, anytime return to play is always going to obviously um, be affected by your relationship with your sports medicine staff. And, and they do an outstanding job and um, are not ego driven. They just want the athletes to get better. And I think that's that's when it works best, right? When we're all on the same page and we're all open to everybody utilizing their expertise. So kudos to them but then um <clears throat> also it's always a little bit of luck right because you you prepare them all you can do is guarantee that they won't fail you can't guarantee that they'll succeed so there's obviously a little bit of luck but um with the return to play guys i haven't had any occurrences of re-injury with guys i've worked at worked with since the beginning of camp which is knock on wood but been amazing to me that by the time they go back, they go back and they stay back and they perform at the level that they were performing at before or higher. But how Sean's work has fit into that is I always start out with basic movement competency um, and it's always right at the, the uh, <clears throat> limit of ability. 
And with an injured athlete, the limit of ability is usually pain or dysfunction, right? So um, we'll start out with basic movement mechanics, and which will be early on a lot of, as we talked about, can cone drills and stuff like that. Because I need to see just can you even do this movement? Um, forget the stress. Can you just do this movement? Um, and once they pass all of those check marks in basic movement competencies, both linearly, multidirectionally, um, uh, <clears throat> reactive strength, right? They're exposed to a, a plyo progression so that I can see their ability to control their bodies, to decelerate, reaccelerate their body in a multitude of directions. Once they pass all the basic movement competencies, then they get to um, the last level, which is movement quality in an unpredictable environment um, where they have to execute their movement patterns and engage with the environment. And obviously the environment is me. I'm a DB or I'm a <laughs> linebacker. Or I'm whatever I need to be. Right. And I maybe am not executing at a world-class speed, but I know because I've watched film and I, I, again, going back, know the sport. I know what cues to give them. I know um, what I want to do to elicit a certain response from them. And initially I'll, I'll, coach them into the response i'll say you know i'm going to charge you if i lean this way you know you'll 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 cut that way or so forth and so on but then it becomes unpredictable i may charge them i may be on my heels um i may flip my hips and it's all based off of what the opponent would do right i'm not making this stuff up it's what their opponent will do and what response they will need to do to solve the problem um so initially we do that with high quality with meaning enough rest time for them to execute it at a high speed, um, technically correct, biomechanically correct, uh, with, with the right solution um, and w without hesitation. Because that's the thing. They've got to be able to do it without hesitation and, and trust the movement. And then the last piece is do that with high quality but for capacity. So then I shorten the rest times and I try to get them to put together the same high quality movement um, very instinctively, very immediately, but with rest periods that will look a little bit more like football. Because if you can't do it fatigued, you, you might get hurt as well, right? So it's great, you know, it's, it's obviously we're far beyond the, the can cone drills, but still, if you need one minute rest to do it properly, you, you still might get hurt, you know? So we squeeze down the rest periods, and if they can do that, um, you know, I get with the sports medicine staff and, uh, you know, more than likely shortly thereafter, they're back to practice and, and they're good to go. So that's so awesome, man. I like just how you integrate. And to me, it's almost as specific as what we were talking about before, like how different the weight room is pushing a weight bilaterally with producing horizontal force on the field, like outputting that. And then, you know, comparing just like it's you listen to you say that and you think about people just doing agility ladder and, and you know a can run to this cone that cone drill and how different is that between that and what you are doing with open environment making the athlete go from their subconscious you know like if it's not wired in the subconscious it's never going to do anything and i think that's that's so cool what you're doing um and, and it's it resonates with a lot of what i'm seeing uh with some other great coaches and like even just the the kids they're training having and play reactive games reacting to somebody and and at the end of the day, that foot tapping into the subconscious, I think that's 
really cool to hear that anecdote and that return to play scenario, man. I got one quick question for you. Um, and, and basically it's just coming back. I actually, I should have asked this before, but I, I kind of got lost in my notes and what question to ask you next, but could you just talk uh, into a little bit, maybe of the case study, that one guy who improved his uh, 40 time the most in your force velocity profiling study. Could you just get into the nuts and bolts of that a little bit with what his needs were, how that improved as his time improved and just talk about him a little bit from a case study perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So he, he was a uh, linebacker, a middle linebacker who uh, subjectively was not to be considered, was not considered very athletic. In fact, that was probably his limiting factor. Um, I'm actually pulling up his data right now on my sprint so I can give you some specifics. Um, <clears throat> it takes a minute. You know, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Great weight room warrior. Uh, great, great weight room warrior. As you would imagine, one of the guys that I was talking about that, you know, big time squat, big time, uh, clean bench, etc. But, uh, if you watched him move subjectively and objectively in terms of times, you would say pretty poor athlete. So, um, you know, his, his, so here's his first test. Um, he was 8.22 newtons per kilogram. That's relative force. Um, DRF was 0. 0.087 and RF peak was, uh, 53%. All right. So, um, and his 30 according to my sprint was a four five, right? So this is going to be a, now the, my sprint is a little bit slower because it's perfectly accurate because of the high speed camera. You can literally go frame by frame. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but that's a guy that that would have been probably like a four, three, uh, stopwatch 30, which means we're, we're running a five, two, mm -hmm. five, one, maybe, you know, or you would think, um, then his last, his last 30, my sprint had at a 4.03, he had 10.492 newtons per kilogram, um, 0 0.096 DRF, uh, which is in the negative. Wow. So it, 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 it decreased. So I should have said that before. It's negative 0 0.0, whatever, which means that he decreased less, basically. And then 61% peak RF. Um, over the course of, of basically two months. Um, and he ran a four six one forty on pro day, uh, which for a middle linebacker, um, I think, you know, there was maybe only two guys at the combine that ran faster than that. Wow. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's just, you know, one example, but as you can tell, how did he get faster? Well, shoot those three things, more force relative to body weight directed more horizontally and, directed horizontally over a greater period of time. Um, and there it was, you know, body weight stayed relatively the same. Um, so that's the, the proof is in the pudding. Yeah, man. Yeah. I bet you were seeing like technical stuff, you know, compared before and after you're probably seeing big technical changes too in light of that. Well, well, absolutely. I think that's the one beauty of a lot of the heavy sled work too, is it's a self-limiting exercise to some extent. Um, you, you can't really get upright and pull 80% of your body weight very fast. So you've got to lean. And if you break at the hips and take little 
short choppy steps you don't move very fast either so you figure out real quick um you know as as i've heard a quote before let the let the let the drill uh do the talking and the athlete do the walking you know so once they fit once they figure out how to i believe that was that came from exos or something but once they figure out how to pull it fast it leads them into um, more optimal acceleration mechanics. Now, again, you've got to bridge the gap and get them to do it uh, on a free sprint, et cetera. And we're watching film. We're, I'm coaching it up as well, you know. But I do, I do think that 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 is um, kind of a physical cue that leads them in the right direction because a lot of the guys have never felt that before, mm-hmm. especially some of your bigger guys, um, you know. And, and in fact, the the first step for uh, alignment that I like to do is take a harness um, and people think all oh, the harness is for resistance. Well, it's not necessarily for resistance. It's so I can hold the dude up and get him to feel what it feels like to lean without sinking down into alignment stance, you know? And obviously we're talking about general acceleration for a 40 or something. Obviously if we're teaching him how to accelerate <clears throat> to play a line, we want him to drop his hips and push a prowler or something like that. Right. But if we're, trying to get him to feel like what it feels like to sprint, you know, I'm holding him up. Now he can lean and feel like, do you feel like that? Okay. You feel that? That's, that's what it feels like. Cause they've never felt it before. There's no context. You can't, you know, it'd be like, it'd be like you saying, Scott, picture yourself hitting a hundred mile an hour tennis serve. Well, I don't play tennis. I don't know what that (laughs) feels like, you know? So it, it gives them context to be able to understand the skill a little bit better. Yeah, and it allows them to learn on their own a little bit too, rather than being coached. And that learning, if they learn it on their own a little bit, that's stickier. It's way stickier, way stickier. Um, that's early in my career. I used to overcoach like everybody else, you know. And and my what I found was my athletes. I would improve the movement pattern that day, and then the next week they were back, and then the next week they were back, and I couldn't figure out what the problem was until I started getting more into motor learning, et cetera, and I figured out that oh they're like a dvd player it only works when i press when i press play (laughs) they they, they need to be able to uh as you said learn the movement on their own um and a lot of times we're we're scared of that and i know we're kind of running out of time but coaches don't coaches want everything to look perfect and that should be our goal but sometimes an athlete struggling through something to learn not under 500 pounds yeah. <laughs> obviously mostly in terms of movement but struggling through something to learn um they'll get better from that rather than just doing the same tired old drills that they can do perfectly but the, the, they can basically sleepwalk through that's not the limit of their ability that's not pushing them yeah i, I love it man and that encapsulates something that is i'm i am learning so much about hearing so much about uh uh from yourself that people like Paul Cater, who we both know, and it's just the coaching roboticism athletes. So huge, but Hey, no, you gotta, you know, you gotta run. I thank you for your time, Scott. There's so much gold in that, uh, interview and talk and, and so much that great things you're doing. So I appreciate it, man. Best of luck to you this season. And thank you for taking the time out of your schedule today to talk with us. Thanks, Joel. Always my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in today. I appreciate you listening to the episode. Scott is the man when it comes to speed. 
We'll be back next week with another great guest. In the meantime, please visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. They are doing incredible things on their blog, regular, fresh information every week. Their store has the best of, basically, in the industry. We're talking free lap timing systems, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, uh, electromyography shorts. You want to see if your glutes are firing up in that squat? You got to get their gear. Uh, PowerDot. So they have pretty much the full range, all the way up to uh, force plate testing, advanced force plates for athletics. So simplyfaster.com, been a great sponsor and really back what they are doing. Check them out. Uh, again, we'll see you guys next week. Until then, have a great one. We'll see you then.